are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Please join me in welcoming Professor Peck. Uh, thanks for a nice introduction for CUS and uh, Recast inviting me to speak. And I know some of you came from, from far afield, so I'm very grateful that you came to Seattle from, from Minnesota and father, fatherland. Is that true? She was right here. Okay, that's pretty far away. That's pretty far away. I came from Wallingford, which is like a mile and a half. Okay. At any rate, let me, let me get started since time is an issue. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to give some historical background to the sort of uh, like immigration situation in Europe today, talk about the themes of assimilation, and I'll use maybe an effective way to do that. So I'm going to focus on a case study of a particular country, Denmark. Um, and I'm going to provide a little sociology too, some, some uh, opinion data about uh, the situation of migrants, especially Muslim migrants in Europe, and about their attitudes towards Europe and European, non-Muslim Europeans attitudes towards them. So first, I want to uh, start with historical background and cast your mind back to the situation Europe was in in 1945. So sometimes uh, 1945 in Europe, at least in the German-speaking world, is sometimes referred to as zero hour. Because you know, German society, European society in general was pretty much in ruins. Not only economic and physical ruin, but also moral ruin, right? These are, this was a, a grievous situation. And you know, a nice symbol of that is these, these really destroyed cities. But what's very important to the theme, what we'll be talking about today is another thing that occurred in Europe in 1945, which is sort of important to remember, is that Europe in 1945 was dramatically unmixed in an ethnic sense compared to the past. Most of, if we think about before World War II, most European countries were pretty actually ethnically mixed. There may have been a nation state ideal that said, you know, Germany is the, is the, is the state that belongs to the people of German nationality. But in reality, there were millions of people who lived in the German Empire or who were not actually ethnic Germans. And that was true pretty much all over the region, especially true in Central and Eastern Europe. By the end of World War II, that was no longer true. And if we think about the classic sort of nation state system in Europe post-war period, remember that came about in part because millions of people were either exterminated or um, forced to migrate or ethnically cleansed or something like that. For example, around 12 million people of German ethnicity in Eastern and Central Europe were expelled during those years. And that, that's just one example. There were others as well. And so in the uh, late 1940s, there were a lot of people on the move. There were millions of displaced uh, people. Even as late as 1947, there were still about 1.5 million people living in displaced person camps in Western Europe. So pretty dramatic. And as a result of all this, European societies were a lot less ethnically diverse than they had been. That helps us understand, I, I'm going to come back to it, because that'll help us understand why, um, the, why ethnic and religious pluralism, which is associated with migration in Europe today, is such a problem. Because post-war success in Europe was associated with those countries being more um, socially and culturally homogeneous than they had been in the past. Okay. So this was the situation after 1945. All governments had the same goals. Basically, those governments were those goals were reconstruction, urgently needed to get the economy going again, 
trying to integrate all these displaced people, victims of war, returning war uh, veterans, prisoners of war, and so on. And they wanted to recast European society really on a new basis, right? A more peaceful basis, on a basis of greater social cooperation and understanding. And without understanding that, I don't think you can understand the major developments after 1945 in Europe. European integration, the formation of the European Union, the development of the welfare state, um, the development of, of, a, of a different model of democratic capitalism than that which prevails, for example, in the United States. One that involved much more egalitarianism, a greater save for labor, and other social interests in the management of the economy and in sharing the rewards of economic growth. Now, of course, after 1945, Europe was divided into pro-Soviet and pro-American blocs, as you well know. And in Western Europe, the real focus was they, had, they wanted to modernize and urbanize their societies. Don't forget that even countries we think of as pretty advanced ones were in 1945 still had a substantial portion of the population were, were still peasants, you know, basically farmers, not much above subsistence. And so one of the great goals was industrialize, move people out of the countryside into the cities, uh, make these more modern economies based on consumer capitalism and better standards of living. And all these countries wanted to uh, urgently improve living standards. They wanted to uh, build a new kind of politics based on social solidarity, on equality, and on democracy. In, in Britain, famously, you probably uh, heard the phrase, of the, the, the one I just used, the welfare state, was coined by Lord Beveridge. And in the famous speech where he defined the new goals of welfare state, he contrasted what he called the warfare state. And he said, the problem for Europe has been for, for hundreds of years that the, the business of the state was basically to make war. And all social progress, all education, all economic growth was predicated on increasing the ability of the state to make war, to make the state more powerful. But he said, this cannot be the future. After the Second World War, we have learned in the future, Europe must be a welfare state. That is, a society that is predicated on improving the, the living standards of the people, the welfare of the people, not just the power of the state. Okay. So social citizenship was promised, social citizenship that would include the sort of democracy we're using in the United States, that is to say multi-party democracy, people having some say in civil rights and so on. But more than that, um, a system in which rewards and risks would be shared and in which the gap between relative winners and losers would be closed. So again, thinking about the theme we'll get to a little bit later in the lecture, think about that the problem for Europe today when you have a combination of economic stagnation and the many people coming into Europe from outside who are desperately poor. How does that undermine this effort to have a kind of uh, society based on solidarity, egalitarianism, and so on? Now, one of the amazing things about the post-war period is the extent to which it succeeded. And from our vantage point today, where we tend to, you know, like in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of talk about the European crisis, and uh, you know, some people go so far as to say the failure of the European model. Not only do I think that's inaccurate, but also I think it fails to really um, give credit to what was achieved, right? Within a couple of years, cities that were in rubble, this example, I'm sorry, this is a little bit blocking it, but cities in rubble like Stuttgart were substantially rebuilt within a few years. And for about 30 years, from the late 1940s through the early 1970s, Europe experienced what's sometimes called the 30 glorious years, or 30 golden years, where there was extremely high rates of social, um, uh, of social progress, extremely high rates of uh, economic growth, and a widening and a sharing of those benefits. 
And this was really the way European identity and the European project was recast after the war. And it made Europeans more, were more willing to cooperate with each other, hence the formation of the European Economic Community and later the European Union, uh, more willing to distribute wealth, and so on. Um, and during that period, as the uh, political economist uh, from Sweden, Jonas Pontesen, points out, in the post-war period, the whole spirit of democratic capitalist politics in Western Europe was about distributive conflict tempered by common interests and economic growth. So it's not that antagonism between capital and labor disappeared, or that unions uh, you know, lost their teeth, far from it. It was just that all parties recognized a common set of goals. And so there was a lot more, let's say, policy consensus in most European countries than we're familiar with. So that the relative ideological space between the major parties was much lower, and all parties agreed that the common goal of integration, of economic growth, was more important than narrow political goals or narrow class-based goals. And the results were pretty extraordinary. Now, in Western Europe, the, this, the unmixed homogeneous populations began to change, and in some ways the kind of political and ideological and cultural foundations of this 30 glorious years began to change as a result of migration. And most famously, as you know, European uh, rates of growth were sustained in part because from, for the first couple of post-war decades, high rates of growth were sustained because in part European uh, manufacturing could keep labor costs down. How? Basically by taking those peasants from the countryside and, making, and bringing them into the cities where they would be relatively low paid workers. So the European miracle was based in part on a low wage growth model, especially compared with the United States at the time. The United States had much higher wages on average than European countries did in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. So that's how the model had, had functioned in part. But the problem was by the mid-1960s, certainly by 1965, um, most of those sources of cheap domestic labor had already been exhausted. All the peasants that could leave the countryside or were willing to do so had already done so. Uh, and then within Europe, um, people had already moved in large numbers um, to other, other countries, adjoining countries, where there was a demand for their labor. So that there was a, a fear that growth rates were going to slow down. The solution to this was importation of cheaper labor into the major manufacturing centers. Um, and you probably know this phrase, guest worker programs. And this was the era of the, of the massive expansion of guest worker programs, eventually brought millions of uh, people into northern, mostly into northern and western Europe to work as guest workers. Here we have a picture of some guest workers arriving from, from Turkey to Germany, which was the largest recipient of, of guest workers from Turkey in particular. But not just there. Uh, for example, between 1960 and 1968, Germany signed guest worker agreements with Spain, with Greece, with Portugal, with Yugoslavia and with Turkey. So kind of from the Europe, you might think of it as the Mediterranean periphery of Europe, all this labor was coming in to help keep this economic boom going. Um, so the goal was, of course, to extend the boom decades, but of course, all of it was based on a severe, um, let's say, a severe case of short-sightedness. All these programs from the perspective of the, Euro of the European governments which instituted them had a basic flaw. They all assumed that the vast majority of guest workers would voluntarily return to their countries of origin. As one German politician famously put it, we had only an interest in importing labor, but it turned out we were importing people. 
So of course, people don't exactly behave like other commodities, and when they're not convenient anymore, they don't simply disappear, right? But that, of course, was the hope. So what happened was large numbers of guest workers came. It was all predicated on the expanding, an expanding economy, high rates of economic growth, and very low rates of unemployment, so that domestic workers didn't complain because they weren't the one losing a job because an immigrant was coming. There's no fear of that. Uh, employers liked it because it kept wages down. Overall, government liked it because growth rates were, were kept going up. That meant the welfare state could continue its expansion, right? These generous welfare state policies could be sustained. Okay, but naturally, two things happened. One, those growth rates slowed down, which we'll get, and we'll get to the main cause of that in a minute. But the other was that many guest workers, after living several years in whatever country, host country, decided that they wanted to remain or realized that things were even worse back home than they thought, right? Those countries often, you know, for example, think about Spain or um, Turkey or Yugoslavia or Portugal in the 60s and 70s. Don't forget those old countries were all dictatorships at the time. So people didn't necessarily, especially if they, many people who migrated actually got very, the immigrants, often guest workers, often got very involved in the union movements in the countries they went to. So they were very afraid to go back and were afraid that they might be discriminated against or that there wouldn't be similar kind of industrial employment. And having lived in a city, the idea of going back home and moving back to some village deep in Anatolia wasn't so appealing anymore. So rather, they wanted, they wanted to stay. And that meant, of course, they wanted to reunify themselves with their family, so eventually bring family and so on. OK. So even after the expiration of these contracts, many people remained. And as a result, millions of immigrants were in place at the time these programs were canceled once deep recession hit in the early 1970s. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, now, remember that initially, immigrants had been perceived pretty much across the board by all political parties and factions as an economic boom. Uh, economic boom. Why? Well, I mentioned the labor, the um, keeping down labor costs was one reason, but there was another reason. Guest workers were obliged to pay into national pension, health benefit, and social insurance schemes, even though it was assumed they would never enjoy those benefits because it was hoped that they would go back home. So from the perspective of the government, it seemed like it just seemed like a great thing. Here's all these people paying in, and they're never going to get the benefit. Great. And from the perspective of the employers, this was good because it kept wages down, right? Um, and because the government assumed it was dealing basically with a transient population, at this time, the 1960s, really through the 1970s, there really were no coordinated policies to integrate newcomers because they were expected to be, you know, not permanent. So as a result, uh, uh, the newcomers tended to end up getting ghettoized, both because of their relatively low incomes and also because their cultural differences from the main population. And so there was very little integration achieved at that time. Instead, you had kind of enclave neighborhoods. And anyone who's been to Western Europe has encountered these, right? Whether it's Berlin or Cologne or the outskirts of Paris or wherever, you, you can readily see these, right? And this is sort of their, their origin. Um, now, we should remember something. Labor migration to Europe was nothing new. Sometimes it's portrayed like this guest worker situation was like this, this completely novel thing. And well, European countries, which had been so homogeneous, how could they have really dealt with that? But that's very short-sighted. Because what historians of labor and migration can show us is that actually in the late 19th century, when Western Europe was industrializing at a much faster rate, urbanizing at a much faster rate than Central and Eastern Europe, actually millions of people from, from Central and Eastern Europe moved. To, the, to Western European countries. And over time, you know, initially it was regarded as, oh, they're too culturally dissimilar, they're too religious, they're too whatever, whatever. 
Um, but over time, you know, they did integrate. So for example, millions of people from Poland settled in Germany, Belgium, um, and France. And eventually, you, you'll notice there's a lot of Polish surnames if you look in a German telephone book, right? Some of those are, are this descendants of these labor migrants, right? Who are now fully Germanizers, right? Same thing is true with France, Belgium, and so on, right? And it wasn't just uh, that case. Many Slavic people settled in Austria. For example, in the Viennese phone book, 40% of surnames in the Viennese phone book are non-German surnames. So like, a lot of people settled in. Now they're Austrians, right? Um, think about all the Eastern European Jews that settled in Western European countries like France or um, Britain. So this was really nothing new. And there's argument that can be made that they did succeed in integrating. Now, partially that was because economic growth was continuous for a long period of time. That may be true. Some conservatives say, well, the analogy is not so strong because they were never as great a share of the population. Maybe that's true. And a third argument is that says, yeah, but they weren't actually as culturally different as the immigrants that came in large numbers in these programs. But I think those points are all debatable. Now, one thing is it became pretty clear. This shows the total number of people um, who are resident in Germany who are who are foreign residents or that their children. And this shows you the number of people employed. So you can see that pretty, this was 1960. So you can see already by the early 1970s a growing gap. And what's true for Germany is basically true for all the other countries too. So that the population is going up, but the relative size of the workforce is either stagnating or declining a little bit, actually. Right? So there actually was much less demand for this less skilled labor, especially from in the recessionary 1970s. But this population kept increasing through family reunification, fertility, and so on. Right? Okay. So by the late, by, certainly by the late 1960s and definitely by the early 70s, public opinion, which had been pretty much united in favor of those guest worker programs, the reasons I talked about, now really started to divide on this issue, on, this, on, on the issue. Business interests still favored them. Churches and advocacy groups often called for greater um, acceptance toward outsiders and greater pluralism, said they can be accommodated. Um, but especially conservative parties began to say, this, is a really, this was never really intended. This is a kind of a disaster. It, the public never really wanted this, and that uh, too many of the migrants and their families are um, undereducated. That was often true, but of course the point had been to bring in less skilled labor. Um, prone to criminality, maybe, but you know, poor people in every society are prone to criminality. Um, and particularly in the case of Muslim migrants, too culturally different from the societies that they were um, settled in. To take Den uh, Denmark as an example. Take Denmark as an example. You know, small, prosperous, liberal reputation, highly social democratic country, very egalitarian. Denmark is small. It recruited just about 15,000 guest workers under guest worker programs in the 1960s. But by the time those programs were canceled in 1973, those, the total number of those workers and their families had swollen to 40,000 people. Um, once people began to realize we now have a large population of people who have no real interest in going back and in fact are, are expanding, public opinion really began to change. Um, and today, about 10% of the Danish population is uh, composed of the descendants of these migrants or more recent newcomers. And even before the oil shock of 1973, uh, a Gallup poll taken in Denmark in 1969 found that more than half of Danes already thought immigrants were making no economic contribution that was patently untrue, by the way, but about, about half said they were making no economic contribution at all. 
and it was found that opposition to immigration was especially concentrated among blue collar workers, farmers, and the small business class, all of whom either saw immigrants as economic competitors or saw them as being a drain on the welfare state. Now, not necessarily competitors in the labor market, competitors for benefits, for social benefits. And if you think about that theme, right, that's, that theme is also probably present a lot in the debate right now we're hearing in the United States, right? The idea that uh, newcomers or migrants, you know, that they are competitors for benefits, not just employment. And that's certainly been a big theme in Europe, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it, but with the rise of these so-called neo-nationalist or far-right parties who, who, unlike in the United States, unlike our right-wing parties, they don't call for a reduction in the welfare state, they call for welfare chauvinism. They say, oh no, welfare state's a part of who we are. It's just that these people shouldn't be included in the welfare state. The finance of the welfare state would be fine if only we could get rid of these people. All right, so we all know the golden age, those 30 glorious years that the French call them, came to an end. And the main reason for it was um, the oil shock that began in 1973, and this shows uh, um, oil production versus prices of oil. Um, the whole premise of European post-war societies have been based on continuous economic expansion, improving, improved living standards, modernization, and all this had been allowed for massive expansion of labor and civil rights. In other words, it made possible the democratic welfare states that in many ways became the envy of the world. All of this had been validated up until the 1970s by the basic premises of Keynesian economics. That is to say, it seemed like Europe was in a virtuous circle. The more it expanded to social, social benefits, the greater the buying power of the public increased, the greater the buying power of the public increased, the more the economy could expand, and so on. So for, for, uh, for decades, full employment meant upward wage pressure, increasing demand, Generous welfare states meant increased demand, and the economy seemed to have no limits to expansion. And social stability and political consensus was kind of premised on this idea of growing productivity and increasing output that made it possible for capital to have profits and better living standards. In short, everyone could be a winner. But by the early 70s, that macro, those macroeconomic conditions were beginning to unravel. First, there was worldwide inflationary pressures. Everyone points to the oil shock as the only factor. It wasn't. The other one was worldwide inflationary pressure. And these were caused not only by rising wage levels across the industrialized countries, but also especially by massive increase in domestic spending. By welfare spending on the one hand, which drove up inflation, and especially by um, the premier world, the premier player in the world economy, the United States, its massive expansion of military spending during the, the Vietnam era, basically exported inflation to the world. So what began to happen was inflation began to erode or eat up the buying power of rising wages. So Europe began to experience the first stagnation of living standards. Second, European industries were very highly dependent, more so than the United States, more very heavily dependent on the importation of raw materials and energy inputs. So that worldwide increase in oil prices as a result of the OPEC cartel, which was dedicated to increasing the price of oil by reducing output, especially uh, severely hit the European countries. And the result was a series of oil shocks, sharp rises in petroleum prices. And Europe, and the United States too, fell into a long period of stagflation, recessionary cycles, high consumer inflation, rising unemployment. Although the causes of the crisis were debated, 
the so-called golden age of democratic capitalism on the basis of social consensus, welfare state expansion, openness to immigration was clearly over. High structural employment endured for decades from the 1970s, and much of, in much of Europe, social democratic expansion, expansion of the welfare state pretty much halted. Now, it turns out there wasn't that much retrenchment. In other words, those social benefits were achieved, universal pension schemes, um, single-payer health systems, and so on. They weren't actually rolled back that much, but expansion ceased. And Europeans began to be worried that they were losing competitiveness in the 90s, I'm feeling especially with the United States, which was booming at the time. Now it's really, really with Asia. Okay, so the end of the golden age, time has this great one here with Archie Bunker and the big freeze here. Um, this what meant. Year is that, what's that say? Oh, the end of the golden age. I know, 73. 73, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the point here is the reason why they chose Archie Bunker is Archie Bunker, if you know the, the program, was a. Uh, he was a um, blue-collar worker from my native city. I was growing up in the 70s. Uh, my father was also a worker who lost his um, factory job in the 70s, never to recover it. That's okay, he found a different job that was better in the long run, but there was, there was some tough times there. But you can imagine that that shocked working-class households, right? And if that shocked working-class households, that all the premises on which the post-war order had been built, all that progress, all that expansion, the idea that, you know, you're not going to get rich, but every three or four years, your union is going to negotiate with the employer, and you're going to get a decent wage that's going to offset any rise in living, and you can expect this lifelong employment, a good pension, and so on, right? Those same things that kind of came to a halt for, Europe, for Americans were also challenged to a, big, to a large extent in Europe. Now, take that, and then add to that this issue of these, increased, these rapidly increasing non-European originally migrant populations, actually not really migrants anymore because a lot of them are actually the children of migrants, so they're actually second and third generation, and you start to see the beginnings of a real problem. So for more than, a for, for the last couple of decades, what Europeans have been debating is, is multiculturalism in Europe possible? Is it possible to accommodate um, the, the, the lifestyle, the values, the uh, religious habits of the newcomers, of the migrants, with the, the, the majority populations. And I think it's, you know, you've all encountered in the news, politicians, journalists, ordinary people begun questioning whether or not Islam in particular, and particularly that practice in immigrant communities, is compatible with Western-style democracy and the kind of diverse, tolerant, multicultural societies that Europeans, especially in Northern and Northwest Europe, are very comfortable with. And all the, um, that tide of radical Islamist violence that's occurred since 9-11. You know, we've had some attacks in the US, but you know, Europe has experienced even, although in terms of total fatality, fewer, but more episodes of that, right? Most recently, you know, the Charlie Hebdo killings, followed very shortly by, in Copenhagen, by the attack on the theater where, where a public debate about whether you could talk about the issue was being, was being held, right? So all of these things, combined with economic troubles, really, I think, have put the, some of the very foundations of the European consensus into question. Now, Muslim population varies a lot. I'm going to focus on Muslims among migrants because I think that's been the focus of the debate over whether integration or assimilation in Europe is possible. Now, of course, the Muslim populations vary a lot by country of origin, ethnicity, how long they've been in, in Europe, by sectarian identification, and so on. Um, but it is true that Muslim populations comprise a really large share of many European countries now, about 10% of the population of France, 5% of the Netherlands, about 5% of Germany, 
about 3% of Italy, about 3% of Italy and, and, and Great Britain. So situation across Europe varies a lot in how, uh, how well Muslim populations are doing, but I can make some generalizations. And that is that Muslims typically in the European Union suffer from an unemployment rate twice as large or greater than the non-Muslim population. Muslims, including those in the second and third generation, so people born in the, these countries, right? So Muslims in the second and third generation are at much greater risk of failing to complete schooling and much less likely to enter the regular labor market than their counterparts. That's really a problem in Europe compared to the United States because most European countries, especially those in Northwest Europe, have very highly regulated labor markets and they have a lot of credentialing and active labor market policies. So if you don't complete educational qualifications and can't get into an apprenticeship program or a job training program, basically you're never going to be regularly employed. Never. I mean, you might be able to find work like working in a, in a, in a delicatessen or a small shop or something like that, but basically you're never going to be in the, in the mainstream of the labor force. And think about what that means across generations. We have a sense of that because we have populations in the United States that also are similarly shut out across generations, right? In Europe, that focus is with these Muslim populations. Um, so, predictably, you know, the debate now in Europe is really about, well, what should be done with this? We see these culture, we see these educational problems, labor force problems, so on. Is, you know, one side says, well, we need to integrate more, give better labor market opportunities, better education. Another side says, no, cultural values are too different. You know, our mistake was admitting in the first place. We have to either coercively integrate or try to get rid of, like, you know, those who are not citizens should be expelled or encouraged to return or whatever. Steve, is there? Yes. The, and not just the United States, but you know, these reports of people in Europe leaving to go fight for ISIS. Yeah. Are the, are the Muslims living in Europe on the receiving end of that? Or some, is, is some of that, well, they're, they're encouraging these people to go, are they being accused of that? Or is um, that influencing the attitude towards the Yeah, you know, this, is, this, is a, this is a terrible source of anxiety because Although the share of Muslims going to volunteer yeah. for ISIS is tiny, yeah. um, the rate at which that's being done is, is high, especially compared to the United States. So Muslim at least some sect in the Muslim population, especially younger men, seem much more angry and less integrated than is the case in the United States. And we see this growing problem with that in the US as well. So yeah, that is a problem. And then the question is, What's the source of it, right? Critics of the of the Muslim of the Muslim communities in these countries will say, oh, it's it's countenanced in the mosques, or you know, religious people are encouraging it. The, the the religious leadership defends itself by saying, hey, look, we're not the ones who put these people into into ghettos. You did it, right? So you have a ghetto problem. That's the root of your ISIS problem. Solve your ghetto problem. You solve your ISIS problem. Conservatives will tend to say, no, the problem is culture, values, the religion is. You know. But yeah, that's exactly right. And you know. It's also um, challenging Europeans' ideas about their civil liberties because most European governments are engaged in very uh, extensive surveillance of the activities of these uh, mosques and religious groups and also online activities. And probably you've heard that you know it's very common in Europe now that um, the people who are going to join ISIS they are actually stopped at the airport. Like the government already knows what they're doing. So you know that's also increasing fears among European civil libertarians that this is. There's too much surveillance, right? Okay. All right, so migration isn't an issue peculiar to Europe, we know that, but one major difference in the United States and Europe is this. In the United States, about two-thirds of migrants, legal or illegal, migrants to the United States, 
are Christian or from, come from countries of Christian origin. And it's precisely the opposite in Europe. About two thirds come from either Northern Africa or the, or the, the near Middle East, right? So that's a, big, that's a big difference. So one of the major questions I think facing Western polities is how do you accommodate uh, Muslim populations? And on the one hand, and will the members of these populations come to see themselves as French Muslims or Muslims who happen to be in France? And that is a big unresolved question for, for, for many European societies. Um, so facing economic insecurity and social marginality, Europe's second and third generation Muslims uh, seem to feel pretty estranged. And Islam is becoming, for some, kind of ersatz homeland, displacing both the cultural traditions of their home. Because remember, if you're the second and third generation, your links to the actual way of life in Turkey, Tunisia, wherever, it's pretty thin, right? So what you, may, what you have is a lot of young people who are kind of in between worlds. They can't go back to the society of their parents. Even if you said you have to go back, you know, you'd be better off going back. They can't go back to Morocco, Tunisia, Turkey, other than as tourists. It's not their society anymore. Many of them have actually not mastered the languages. Right? On the other hand, they don't feel French or accepted by French or Danish or German or whoever people. They're kind of stuck in an in-between position, right? So what I want to do is look at some data from, from it's from 2006, but this was the last time a really good survey like this was done that gets at some uh, attitudes about Muslims living in, in Europe, some European countries. Now, usually the problem we have is that standard, this is like sociology geek stuff, but from a, a stand, you know, when we do standard population-based surveys, the problem is that minority groups are always underrepresented in the survey. So if we take a random sample, let's say, of 2,000 French people, we'd only get a couple hundred max uh, French Muslims in the end, and that's too few to make Really, you don't have enough statistical power to make. So what you have to do is you have to use oversampling techniques. It makes it harder to do surveys, but they can do it. And you probably know that the Pew uh, Research Foundation is one of the best outfits in the United States that does public opinion research, and they did a really good one in 2006. So this question asked Muslim, this asked Muslim residents, do they regard themselves as Muslim first over the citizenship of the nation that they live in? And you can see that varies, you know, really high by 80% of Muslims in the United Kingdom, for example. Um, versus around 45% or so in, in France. That's kind of the range, but it's a pretty high percentage across Europe. Um, another one is, um, this one now asks, in the same societies, asks non-Muslim people, do you think that immigration from the Middle East and North Africa is a bad thing for society? And you can see that that varies from around 40%, you know, around 40% to, France, about 30% in Spain, around 30% in UK, and you can see nearly 60% in Europe. By the way, probably these attitudes have gotten a little worse since 2006, I would, I would guess. But this is the last good observation I had. Um, this one asks the share of the public at large, do you think relations between Muslims and Westerners are generally good? And you can see that France does the best, but still only about a third of the population. Um, and that's about the same as the US. Like I, fortunately, they asked this question in the US also, so I could compare. But that's not a very high proportion. And it's probably a little lower now. Um, this is the one that asks um, people in these countries, do you think there's a conflict between Muslim piety and they phrase it as the demands of modern life? And you can see Germany stands out again. And 70% of Germans say, yeah, there's a conflict. Right? They, they, they can't be Germans. Right? Muslims can't be Germans. Uh, or modern Germans in that sense. Right? But that's close, it's about 50% and about 40% in the US. Um, so, you know, one of the focuses, as you know, of these integration debates in Europe has been whether there should be headscarf bans, and a number of European countries have instituted them, uh, most famously France. 
So you can see, you know, a very high proportion of French people say, yeah, headscarf bands are a good idea. Actually, around 50% of Muslims in France think headscarf bands are a good idea. Uh, wow. Is that due to the, in part to the super secular nature of uh, France? Yes. Post the revolution. Right, and some, and a lot of Muslim migrants who came to France came um, at the time of the Algerian Revolution who were allies of France, who had served in the French army or whatever. And so those ones are more integrated and more, more into the idea of the French Republic and secularism, I would say. But you know, a friend of mine who did a book on this paradox, why uh, is that? Partly is that a lot of um, Muslim women in France say, you know, if the government bans headscarves, it makes me it makes it easier for me not to wear one because then I can go to my family and say, you see, you're just causing trouble for me. Don't insist on this. Like you can tell them, say their father or their husband, like don't put pressure on me. And then the father or husband backs off. Whereas if it's if it's not bans not in place, they don't have that leverage. That may be one reason why France stands out. This question asked, um, actually, what percentage of uh, women in Muslim women in these countries report that they wear a headscarf? or a veil every day. And you can see that it is the lowest in France. You know, it's about so less than 50%. Um, whereas in the UK, about 80%, really high percentage. Yes? Do you have a trend on that? Is no, it? unfortunately, no. Yeah, this is just a snapshot from 2000. This is just as in 2006. Do you, do you feel like it's decreasing? Would it be a cultural? No, I think it's increasing. Oh, I'm sorry, um, the, the use of headscarves, was that decreasing or increasing? Increasing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Anecdotal evidence and evidence from particular countries says it's increasing. So, for example, in one case I know well, Germany, the share of women who wear headscarves daily in Germany since 1980 has about doubled. Uh -huh. And why? I think it's related to the issue I raised before of feeling in between worlds. And when you are, um, uh, when you feel discriminated against and culturally different and shut out of society, a lot of times actually you cling very strongly to those symbols of your, uh, you know, you actually say, you know what, fine, you won't accept me, okay, right. I'm going. This, I'm going to more strongly adhere to my, to my group. And I think that's why. Is there a reason? That also, there's a lot of activity by more conservative Muslim preachers. I, I wrote I a paper. I wrote a paper with Tony Gill in the political science department that we published a few years ago, and uh, what we were able to show in the case of Germany was that more radical Islamist religious organizations are, are getting more influence and getting stronger in Germany compared with more liberal integrationist, more moderate Muslim elements. So it's a combination of that estrangement on the one hand and a lot of successful organizational and ideological efforts by the more radical, more politicized Islamist groups. Are you seeing more of this with the, uh, say the, the disaffected young people, the people whose Parents came over and said, well, it's, it's great to be in this country, and these kids have not found the spot. They're, they're not Algerian, they're not French, they're right. somewhere in between. I think it's exactly what it is. And so one, if you're not really going to allow to be a member, don't feel like you can be a full-fledged member of, your, of the country you're living in. One of the things that Islam has offered that's a very attractive idea is the idea of Ummah, the idea of the universal world, Muslim world. And perhaps by wearing a headscarf, you symbolize I belong to that world. I do belong to something. I do have a source of solidarity. So think about it. Let's say you're the third generation daughter of Moroccan immigrants, say, right? No, Morocco doesn't have too strong a pull on you, right? On the other hand, you don't feel very much at home, let's say, in Belgium where you're living. So the idea that there's a third place, a third pole, a third place where you can be a member, the Ummah, which expects a certain degree of modesty or whatever, piety from women, might be a very appealing alternative. I think that's, I think that's what's going on. And for women, you feel like it's a choice and not a demand? I think that varies, right? Yeah. Some women choose it and some women are coerced by the families. So. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
it's hard to know exactly what share. Right. Right. My friend who did the book on France suggests that um, there's actually, she, she found in France less coercion than we might think. But you also see that the rate here is, is well. Mm -hmm. France may be a little different. OK, oh, I'll get back to that. Um, OK, so I'll skip that time. All right, so I want to come back to the, the beginning. That is, the goal of Europe after 45 is to create a Europe of peace and prosperity. What does the immigration crisis mean for this? Well, since the 1990s in Europe, the great preoccupation has been trying to preserve a politics of solidarity and the welfare state in the face of two problems, the increasing diversity of the populations and increasing social conflicts, which we've been talking about, on the one hand. And on the other hand, growing global competition, which makes it harder for European firms to grow at the rates they have grown in the past and to be as generous in sharing the benefits of that growth. Now, European levels of social spending are really high. So you can see, for example, Denmark spends about 34% of its GDP in social spending. By contrast, the United States would, be, would fall down here around 20% down with like the Czech Republic, Croatia, something like that. So, so quite a bit less, right? So, so European countries, this data is from 2010. This is post-crisis data. It shows that European countries are not massively cutting back the welfare state. That's not their focus, right? They want to preserve the welfare state. They want to um, protect it in the face of, uh, uh, in face of um, competition. And as much as you hear all this talk about neoliberal reform, and there has been a lot of like opening up the labor market and other kinds of reforms, weakening employment protection throughout Europe, that's true. But social spending is still really high. Um, in fact, compared with the United States, Europe still is much more egalitarian than the United States, right? Like rates of social inequality are much lower. Wage differences are much smaller. Although we hear a lot about um, Europeans' economic decline, and we'll see recently that has been, that has been this, some worries there, but generally Europe is still pretty economically competitive, right? <coughs> Over that if you measure productivity by hourly labor productivity, actually higher than the United States and much higher than Asian countries. So Europeans, as you know, work many fewer hours than yeah. Americans. But when they work, their labor productivity is much higher. Right? And anyone who's ever lived in Europe can tell you that, right? Yeah. Like your European, your European counterparts, they go in their office, they're only there for seven hours, but they work for those seven hours, and they're, then they're gone, right? It's like they might be leaving at Friday at 3 o'clock, and you don't see them until Monday again at 10. But when they're there, they're working really hard. So actually, labor productivity, measuring hourly terms, not total output, is actually higher than, quite a bit higher than the United States. Um, and even if those utopian dreams of post-war period have not really been realized, let's give Europeans credit to the extent to which peace, prosperity, European integration was achieved, with all, even with all the problems that they have. OK, but there's two really big problems, I think, that come about as a result of, of the immigration issues we've been talking about. First problem, immigrants in Europe, particularly those from Muslim countries, as we talked about, they're clustered in lower status economic and social positions. And as a result, for some European Muslims, this has, en has engendered very deep resentment against European society and reactive identification with a politically charged Islam. That's one. Second, now, European uh, polities after 45 were really premised on secularism, some more than others. But basically, you know, church going and collapsed after 45 all over Europe. And, you know, basically, France is particularly noteworthy in this regard. But it's true pretty much throughout the region, right? 
with some cap exceptions, some Catholic countries. So, you know, as these countries have been, think about the paradox, as these countries have generally becoming much more secular and less, less religious, right, going a different, different route than the U.S. for the most part, right, since 25, they brought in migrants who are much more religious than the society, yeah. those societies, right? So this has caused that, and who became more religious once they got to Europe, right? So there's lots of evidence that shows that, for example, Turks who migrate to Western Europe become more religious than they were in Turkey, right? So what does that mean? Well, it means that Europeans are now in a position where they have to do more accommodation of demands for public religiosity, like demands to wear headscarves, like the demand that religiously offensive statements or, or offensive cartoons be censored, right? Europeans hate censorship, right? Like they premise their whole post-45 society on maximum civil liberties and free speech. But many Muslim immigrants say no, like there's some things you can't do, like you can't insult the, our religion. You can't draw these pictures, you can't whatever, right? So how do you accommodate that? And what about uh, Islamic instruction in public schools? Other religious groups were allowed to offer religious classes in public schools in many parts of Europe, but Muslims so far mostly not. So the Muslims can say, hey, there's a basic unfairness here. So a huge question is how that's going to be uh, addressed. Now, the dilemma for Europe is this. Europe is having a really hard time integrating and assimilating newcomers, whether they come as a result of the long-term guest worker issue, or more recently as illegal immigrants, or as asylum seekers, or refugees, or whatever. Right? No matter how they come, Europeans are having a hard time integrating them. But the dilemma is that as much as there's growing voices in Europe, as you know, these neo-nationalist far-right parties now are sometimes the second or third largest parties in some countries, growing clout, right? And many of them say we should push out immigrants or forcibly integrate them or something. So on the one hand, there might be that desire, but there's two facts that speak against that. According to the UN, there's about 738 million European people about 500 million of them in the European Union. They adjoin an African continent, for example, which has a population of 1.2 billion. By 2050, according to the latest UN projections, and actually one of the people who worked on that was our own Adrian Rafferty here at the University of Washington in physics department. Shout out to that big, uh, really important research. It's estimated that if these projections are right, by 2050, the European population will fall to 707 million and that will be a very much an aging population, while Africa's population is expected to be about 2.4 billion. By 2100, Europe um, will, should decline to just 646 million, and if current rates of growth continue, and that's always debatable, but then Europe, the African population, for example, would be 4.4 billion. So, in other words, Europe is rich, by contrast to the rest of the world, and old. It's bordered by societies that are young and poor. What's to think that the demand for migration to Europe is going to slacken, even if you make it really unpleasant for Europeans to be there, even if you try to discourage them, right? So not an easy thing. On the other hand, that the demographic decline means Europeans need migrants. After all, how can you sustain those generous welfare state policies that are one of the hallmarks of European identity and the European political systems if you have too few working age people paying into those schemes. So in other words, Europe needs migration at a time when it doesn't want migration. It needs migration in part to maintain economic competitiveness, right? And you can see in the last, oh sorry, that's not too easy to see, but this is the change in real GDP 2004 to 2014. Actually, European countries mostly outperformed the United States in the 80s and 90s 
But recently, since the economic crisis, which you know has affected Europe worse than the United States, actually they're, they're losing some ground. Economic growth has been more sluggish. For example, the United States is expecting between 2 and 2.5 rate of economic growth for this year. Europe, the EU, you know, there's variation across the EU countries, but the EU as a whole is expecting at best a 1% increase, right? So they're slowing down. So you know, migrants could be a benefit, right? Migrants, just like in the past, could help sustain the could help sustain economic growth, could help the economy move along, could replenish that dwindling stock of workers who make the welfare state possible. But on the other hand, it's happening at a time when exactly these slow rates of growth make European voters less inclined toward generosity. So you can say to a European voter, well, in the long run, Europe needs a lot more migrants, right? But they'll say, yeah, but I think in the short run. In the short run, I'm worried about my job. In the short run, we already have high unemployment rates. In the short run, most immigrants actually take more, right? It's shown that, for example, most Muslim migrants in Europe take more in social benefits than they pay back in taxes or, or through wage contributions. So they'll say, yeah, you might be right about the long run, but I live in the short run. In the short run, I'm not inclined to generosity. I mean, there's a similar discourse in the United States as well, right? right? You can make any kind of long-term arguments you want, but most people are not thinking like that, uh -huh. right? They're thinking about their own pocketbook this week, next week, here yeah. we come. Yes? But in the long run, aren't they giving up to something of their, of their you know, culture and their state? And, right. I mean, it just, it almost looks like it could be an invasion. And so once the population of Muslims is higher than the 10%, you know, if they're 50% or 75% right. or, you know, at some point, you made your nationality. Exactly. So, and, and uh, that's one of the messages that these more increasingly successful neo-nationalist parties put it. That's one of, the, one, of the, one of the ways they say. They say, on the one hand, there's the economic issue. Why are you bringing in all these people when we don't have enough jobs for the people we have here already? And on the other hand, they'll say, and in the meantime, it's a cultural, you know, it's going to change the basic cultural nature of the, of the society, right? And I think those are reasonable uh, concerns, and I think it's one of the reasons why European voters are turning toward those parties. On the other hand, one could say, who's to say that Europe has to be frozen, what it means to be European is frozen in time circa 1945, right? And one of the reasons I gave up, uh, tried to give the example of that, Europe in 45 actually looks a lot different than, Europe, right? You know, Europe survived being much more mixed than it was in the 60s for a long time, right? So maybe the definition of what it is to be European or Italian or French or Danish or whatever, that can evolve some, right? So probably, you know, I think what moderate politicians are trying to do, moderate policymakers, is try to figure out how do you get enough migration so that there can be an evolution towards a more plural society without that feeling of being overwhelmed in that culture, right? Um, and also that's more economically manageable. How do, you manage, how do you do that? And right now, you know, the feeling, I think the great dilemma is, is that many Europeans feel totally besieged, right? Because between uh, you know illegal migrants or refugees coming in ships that you know get stranded and then the people are brought into Europe, or coming um, from the Syrian refugee crisis coming through Turkey and then making their way through Greece and the Balkans, mm -hmm. right? Or this you know uh, really lamentable situation in Calais where there's these camps of people stuck between two places, right? Who's responsible for them? Should someone send them back? Whatever, nothing is done. They just sit there, and that Calais thing you've probably seen, right, that the, the migrants were trying to get to England from France, I think has become for many Europeans emblematic of a political elite, of a political establishment that seems to have no answers, that seems exhausted, confused, yeah. not willing to confront the situation or really make a strong case for, for a different future one way or another. 
And so there's this feeling like we're kind of stuck. We know we need some migrants, but how many, how fast, so on, right? That's all up to debate. We know the economy needs help, but you know we have to get, regain some prosperity before people are going to be willing to share, right? And that's, I think, the situation. So I'm done with my presentation. Now I'll open it up. I think we have four or five minutes. Three minutes. Three minutes. We have time for a few questions. I know some of them. Yes. I read an article a while ago about. Um, just oh, by the way, all these slides are going to be made available to you. Thank I didn't have them in advance, but they're going to be they're going to be shared with you. Yeah. Just this question of how to, well, essentially to integrate Muslims and better into European society. And there was some discussion about like bringing, you know, more education to imams or, or bringing it into this sort of academic setting. Like, let's learn about this in college, so people have like an actual foundation of what the religion is instead of just right. like what they hear some crazy person saying. Um, and it, that to me seems like, what a great idea. Like, why can't we do that? So is there anything happening in regard to that? Yeah, a lot of progress has been made in that regard. So remember I said before, like when the populations first came, there was no interest in integrating them because it was thought they weren't going to stick around. So for example, no uh, theological faculties for the training of Muslim imams were created in Europe. That only has been done really since 9-11. But that has made a lot of progress. The problem is now, and we're seeing this in the United States too, is that every would-be extremist whether he supports some far-right party or racist party or ISIS, whatever, can find like-minded people really easily on the internet. They don't need intermediaries anymore or organizations in between them anymore. Right? Like people can be mobilized into this stuff without having an organizational foundation to do it. And that's much harder to confront. I mean, the US is having a huge problem with it, and Europeans are having a big problem. Sometimes the one phrase that's being used by sociologists is self-radicalization. So even if you have no ties to any organization, it's not your neighborhood imam who's, who's radicalizing you, if you're kind of pissed and you're angry and you feel like you're left out of society, you go on the internet, type in, I'm angry, whatever, right? Like Google that and you like plenty of people have answers for you and be very happy to get you involved in some probably radical business, right? And so I think that's the harder part. But yes, you know, one hopeful sign is that now almost all the European countries at their universities have theological faculties. There is now domestic training of imams. There's also more licensing of, of imams going on so that just like foreign imams who from like Saudi Arabia who are often quite radical can't just come and you know open up a shop front mosque and cause mischief, right? So there, there's a lot more regulation of that on the surveillance side, but also more on the on the more um, let's say sharing of resources side, like creating those theological faculties. Okay, great question. Yeah. So so Europe's divided from about 47 until 1990, and then uh, socialism collapses in the east. That had a profound effect on Western Europe's economy. To, to what extent does that impact this whole situation with people's attitudes towards immigrants, having to integrate that as well? Excellent point. You know, and I didn't really talk about that, but anti-immigrant attitudes in Europe actually are conflated between fear of outside, from outside Europe and fear of the children of immigrants who've been there for a long time in Europe and newcomers to Britain or France or from other EU countries. So for example, like a lot of the anti-immigrant uh, sentiment in Great Britain is not just directed at Muslims or refugees or whatever, it's also against like Romanians or Poles who they think are coming and like, you know, work for too little wages or are willing to take irregular labor contracts or whatever. So you're quite right about that. And that, so the anti, one of the reasons I think that uh, anti-immigrant parties are doing so well in Britain, like UK Independence Party, right? It didn't do as well in the election, but still got around 15% of the vote. Just didn't get many parliamentary seats because Britain, like us, has a first-past-the-post system, not a proportional system. Um, 
one of the reasons they're doing so well is that there's a whole bunch of, like if you say, I'm against immigrants, or like, I think migrants should, migration streams should be stopped. You know, that's a nice catch-all, because say I don't like Muslims, I can say, oh, that sounds good. Say I don't like Romanian plumbers, because I'm a plumber and I think he's stealing my business, I can say, oh, that sounds good, right? Or if I'm somebody who thinks like, why doesn't Europe have control of its own borders? Why can people just you know, swarm through the sea or swarm through whatever? Say I have a concern, I can also say, okay, that sounds good to me too, right? So I think you're exactly right. And these, these anti-immigrant parties are gaining a lot of traction because they're picking up on all those things. What you'll notice is when it comes to policy side, they're pretty thin on, on like concrete policy suggestions. We're seeing that in our own debate in the United States too, right? There's a lot of people who are critics of the current pretty muddled migration regime. But on the other hand, when, when they're asked to give specifics, they usually not very specific, right? Because that, it, it's a big problem with multiple dimensions, exactly as you, exactly as you said. Yes? Is there any thought to economic development in places like Africa or the Middle East that might help them out there try to stop the, the flow or to create more a more equal situation? I mean, do Europeans think about making those investments? Or? Definitely. And, and in the 90s, for example, there was a real big uh, understanding of this in, in Europe. And there was a, a, a phrase was developed called self-interested aid. So the idea was that European aid dollars should be invested disproportionately in poor countries that are joining Europe or right next to Europe. Right? And uh, you know, Arista might be talking about, I don't know, but there, there's a, a program called, there was one called the European Neighborhood Policy, in which the European Union invested a lot of money in trying to develop the social, political, economic infrastructures of societies in the you know close by that are likely to furnish migrants. Um, and I would say those are regarded as being kind of a mixed success, maybe some success in some places, but um, we're kind of with the collapse of Syria and the collapse of Libya. It's looking like a tad, would you say it's kind of looking like a, that policy is looking like a shambles right now. Their policy is a shambles, but the idea of um, attacking root causes of migration is very active right now, yes. as you can imagine. So um, development assistance for Sub-Saharan Africa is um, going to be increased and channeled in more effective ways. Uh, so they're, you know, they have a two-pronged approach at the EU level. One is interdiction, stop the migration, and secondly, root causes. The EU, together with EU member states, is the world's largest uh, donor um, uh, of development assistance and humanitarian assistance. So they have a good track record there. Whether it's enough, we'll see. Well, that was a much better answer than I could have first. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I've taken more, I think, more than my time. So I will thank you very much for your attention, and I will quiz for the next speakers to come up and get settled. But I think what we'll do, since we are running a little uh, late, is cut the intro short. So once you're settled in, we can go straight to the next talk. Thanks, everybody.